0: Support for the show comes from Mercury. Startups, you don't need to settle for cumbersome banking experiences to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with an effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and saving accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for PropG comes from ServiceNow seems everyone is talking about AI. The hype's everywhere. It's writing college essays, running earnings reports, and fabricating my voice so well that I'll no longer need to record podcast ads. Just kidding about the last one. But you know what's not a joke? ServiceNow's ability to put AI to work across your business. With their intelligent platform, you can improve customer experiences, help non-coders to code, accelerate your IT team's productivity, and resolve HR cases faster. So work can actually work better for everyone. So stop the hype and start putting AI to work. Go to servicenow.com slash genai to see why the world works with Servicenow. Welcome to the Prop G pod. I am out of the office. I know, I know, I need a break. You can sense the stress. You can sense the depression. You can sense... The fatigue. I actually have less of those today than I usually have. I hate my life less and less today. Anyways, today we're running one of our favorite interviews featuring Dambisa Moyo. Dambisa is a global economist and best-selling author, total gangster, talking about an impressive person. She discusses all sorts of topics, including the private sector, deglobalization, and public policy. Deglobalization, you don't hear that word a lot. Dr. Moore, give us five things or some things that you think will kind of define uh, the post-pandemic economy. What are the enduring changes to our economy?
1: So, from my vantage point, and really based on looking back in history, in particular to the Gilded Age and the years and decades after um, the period of 1870 to 1900, the five things that are going to define the macroeconomy, I believe, are um, really characterized by, by the overarching uh, view of a more progressive world and one in which the government is, is more important. So, first of all, I think we will see bigger government. And by that, I mean larger debts and deficits, um, if you can imagine such a thing, given where debts and deficits are today. Part of that is, um, is really the government's role as a, as a provider of welfare, um, I think, will continue. Um, the second point is that government will become bigger, much more important in terms of being an arbiter of capital and labor. We've already seen signs of this. And by that, I mean much more important in terms of employment, much more important in terms of supporting businesses. So, for example, the fact that the Fed in the United States have been buying um, uh, sub investment grade debt to support um, so certain corporations. And also we've seen in the UK where there've been um, massive furlough schemes, um, which I think will be more uh, needed over the long term. I think that's a second second thing that we'll continue to see. Um, The third thing that um, I'm sure to see, which is a corollary of government getting bigger, is that I think the private sector will get smaller. Um, And in that respect, we've already seen some of these trends over the past decade, um, according to uh, Wiltshire and other data sources, the um, number or the proportion of uh, publicly traded companies in the markets has gone down by about 50%. And I think that is a trend we'll continue to see, partly as, as there's much more consolidation and MA in the markets, but also as many companies shy away from the sort of heavy regulatory uh, scrutiny and burden, both from uh, you know institutions and regulators, but also um, from society more generally. The fourth area that I think is really important um, is that we're going to see more taxation and much more regulation. Again, this was very much uh, thematic in the uh, period uh, post the Gilded Age followed by the crash in 1929, um, where you started to see much more antitrust legislation. Uh, We've started to see hallmarks of that, especially as many of the largest sectors Banking, airlines, pharmaceuticals, technology, etc., um, are now dominated by just a handful of, of corporations globally. So we've ended up with oligopolies in many of these key sectors, uh, essentially organically. But I think there'll be a, a greater push from governments to to really be much more aggressive in an antitrust uh, perspective. And then fifth, uh, one area, a fifth area that I think is going to absolutely define uh, the post-pandemic era, which was actually something, a trend that was happening before COVID hit in earnest, is there will be greater uh, deglobalization. And just as, as an umbrella concept, deglobalization is about trade. It's about the movement of capital for investment. Uh, it's about the movement of people in terms of immigration. Um, it's about the, the commonality around standards, um, So, such as intellectual property and it's also very much about um, institutions that govern the uh, global monetary and uh, sort of uh, trade and uh, commerce uh, environment, such as the Bretton Woods Institutions, which were established in 1944, such as the World Bank and the IMF. Um, I think, we, the, the, in fact, I know there was already trend lines showing that that uh, the deglobalization, reduction in trade and capital, a stronger and more aggressive anti-immigration policies, um, the risk of a splinternet that you'll have a US-led and a China-led versus a China-led type of uh, intellectual property war uh, in technology space, and really the rise of, of, of um, alternative uh, mm-hmm. multilateralism. Uh, I think all of these uh, aspects of deglobalization will gather momentum in the period post the pandemic. So those are the five things that I would say would Highlight the post-pandemic era.
0: The a couple of these things: when government's getting bigger, private sector getting smaller. My traditional capitalist DNA says that that results in a lower levels of output and productivity, and that is a bad thing. Where do I have that wrong? What are the good? What are the upsides and the bad sides of a shift to more resources to government coming out of the private sector?
1: Well, I think um, you, you're not. Wrong at, on the superficial level, but I think there's a, an a, an important caveat, and or I should say an important assumption that you're making when you make that claim, which is to say that government um, is acting inefficiently um, mm-hmm. or ineffectively. Um, you know, we have had periods, and and I should say I'm I'm like you, I'm very much a a, a sort of red blooded capitalist. Uh, I really mm-hmm. do believe that the private sector needs an important central role. In, uh, in driving uh, innovation, growing the GDP pie, um, improving livelihoods and uh, really driving uh, human progress. So I, I, that is very much what I believe. But I also think that we, we oughtn't forget that when you look back in history and even recent history uh, in the United States, for example, the government has been a key player in a whole host of areas that have helped to drive um, the success of the private sector, whether it's mm-hmm. through the Manhattan Project or DARPA, mm, DARPA or the development yeah. of si- Silicon Valley, or even go back Vaccines. further in history. Backs, exactly, <laughs> yeah. touche, yeah. uh, but also going back further in history, the you know the, the notion that somebody somewhere with the help of state and you know ultimately federal government thought about high schools um, developing a program or a template for For education, that could be broad-based. I mean, these are elements, and of course, infrastructure, are just a handful of elements where government, which acts on the data-driven, forward-leaning, measured outcomes and in a a non-corrupt way can be incredibly catalytic for Mm -hmm. economic success.
0: When I hear, so I'm going to use the S word, socialism, but I also want to acknowledge Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a, a bad word. Seven of the 10 countries that report the happiest citizenship are socialist. So I want to use it just as an economic construct. It's not an insult. It's not a, a warning sign. I th- I find a lot of people in the media are using socialism as some sort of cautionary tale, like, oh no, socialism. <laughs> but it, when I think about socialism, I think it's okay when the state controls the means of production and how it spoils get divvied up. And it sounds like what you're predicting in a post-pandemic world is, roughly speaking, we're moving towards a more socialist construct.
1: Well, I think it, again, really depends um, very crucially on how those governments operate If you Mm -hmm. end up with a government that is not really interested in growing the pie, but is more interested in redistributive um, approaches, I think, yeah, that is an outcome that we ought to all be dissatisfied with. Um, That is not to say that we should be blind to concerns around income inequality getting worse, social mobility down by 50% in the United States over the last several decades, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, those are, are, you know, we we have to be led and, and policy should be driven and curated based on the facts, which is that, you know, there are certainly losers, um, uh, winners and losers in a, in a more globalized, capitalistic world. But, you know, I don't have any objections to a socialist quote-unquote states that uh, where mm-hmm. you see a bigger pie and, and again I'm using your terminology that I did know in this context the notion of socialism meaning that government is much more involved as an mm-hmm. arbiter of capital and labor as opposed to one in which um, the spoils are, are just you know they're just there to, to redistribute I don't think that that is a, an environment that uh, we should aspire to and one one example of uh, work that I've done, uh, my first book, um, which is now over 10 years old, um, was really a critique of these large aid programs, which on paper seem very attractive. Oh, we want to help the poor and the best way we should help them is through the aid transfers. But you know what I was arguing that that is not the best way and you actually create dependencies that are longer term deleterious for economic progress and, and ultimately for human, human progress as well. So that's, that's where I stand on this. I'm all for, for government providing public goods such as infrastructure, providing um, public goods such as, uh, as education and national security. Um, I have deep, deep reservations around um, governments that only see themselves as you know, essentially being short term in their thinking and very focused um, on, uh, on redistribution and not much in terms of long term thinking.
0: So the rescue package, the stimulus, the CARES Act, PPP loans, grade our response so far, our economic or fiscal or monetary response to the um, crisis. What did we get right? What did we get wrong?
1: I think the original approach um, across the world was three things. Uh, I think it was one, um, it was not multidimensional. I think everybody interpreted it as being a healthcare problem first. And all the Mm -hmm. advice came from healthcare experts. It was very little sort of, let's bring a bunch of experts around the table, um, whether they're economists or socio-anthropologists, et cetera, which I think that was one error. Um, A second error is I think we didn't really view it as a long-term problem. I think there was a lot of a sense that it would be quickly resolved. Um, We we couldn't imagine that it would just disappear. yeah, that we just couldn't imagine. We were not we have not planned for something that could happen for another couple of years. And even with the evidence that uh, Spanish flu was from eighteen twenty, mm-hmm. excuse me, I beg your pardon, nineteen eighteen to nineteen twenty, um, mm-hmm. we still assumed we we you know with technology and knowledge we'd be speedily out of this situation. And and yet here we are. Um, now we have to face all the distribution issues around the vaccine, etc. The third thing which I think we could have done better is this is a global healthcare problem, and yet we've all gone to our respective corners to solve it unilaterally. Um, so I think there, for me, especially somebody who's quite a globalist, uh, I think that that's a failure um, in, in a lack of coordination. Very emblematic of, of some of the deglobalization points that I raised earlier. We're in a world where people um, think that the world should be more balkanized.
0: Doesn't deglobalization, isn't, isn't that really a step backwards?
1: Oh, from my vantage point, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, see, I am, uh, I am very much a big believer of what's uh, offered or been proffered in textbooks around globalization. I think we should all produce in the world what we're best equipped to produce. Um, that's the mm-hmm. fundamental, it's comparative advantage or competitive advantage, however you want to to describe it. And unfortunately, for a whole host of reasons, we've ended up in a world where places that should be doing certain things. And, you know, i give an example of my home continent of origin, Africa, which is largely subsistence farmers, largely agricultural. It has the largest proportion of untilled arable land left on the planet. That economy, those economies really should be at the forefront of feeding themselves as well as the world. But you have subsidy programs, which are very rational um, in some respects, uh, more political respects than economic respects, because politicians want to win the state of Iowa and Idaho, etc. So they've mm-hmm. got to pander and protect the markets of their farmers. And similarly, through the uh, Common Agriculture Policy in the European Union, they want to protect British farmers and French farmers, and so they lock out African and South American food producers. And as a consequence, we move for, we move away from. From globalization, so I understand the rationale on paper, but you know, th- we all we're all poorer for it. You know, I, I wish we we be been a much more coordinated global world, but um, you know, it's a far cry. The reality is a far cry. Uh, what I'd call real is a far cry from what is uh, what is in textbooks.
0: When you look at our economy and our policies, if there were one or two structural changes you would like to see implemented,
1: what would they be? Um, It's a great question. I actually published something on Lincoln recently. Uh, I won't go through all of them. but It was sort of three things we should start doing, three things we should stop doing, and three things Mm -hmm. we should keep doing. And this is for the the United States. I won't go through all of them, but it's certainly the case that for the United States, uh, for me, the biggest uh, vulnerability is the political environment. It's far Mm -hmm. too short term. Um, We're in a situation where the political infrastructure in democracies is misaligned from a lot of the long-term problems that the the global economy and the U.S. economy faces, whether it's technology and the risk of a jobless underclass, demographic Mm -hmm. shifts that are leaving people unemployed, concerns about uh, the environment. These are all long-term. Income inequalities, these require deep Thought and they require long-term solutions, but our politicians are rewarded for short-term thinking. The, on, the other thing, which is to me very obvious, and it's been frustrating to see decade after decade not really resolved with any gusto, is the uh, is the, the sort of boosting the infrastructure. Uh, America's infrastructure is graded D plus by the American Civil Engineering Corps. Um, you know, this is just not the the sort of backbone of a successful economy for the 21st century. Um, and similarly, you know, education remains incredibly weak. Look at the OECD, PISA statistics in mathematics, reading, science, American students are now, they used to be in the top three. Now they're in the bottom 30 of the world in terms of rankings. And, and as you probably know, this generation of Americans, um, for the first time in the history of the country since 1776, Will be less educated than the preceding generation. I mean, this is just not a formula for success, um, no matter what caveats uh, people might attach to them. I think we really have a lot of work to do.
0: Yeah, the short-term thinking here. There's just so many examples. I think of the H-1B visas. If you know, 50% of doctoral candidates are immigrants, and we've decided to take our secret sauce and 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 stop it at the border, right? And then I, w- right. w- but the ultimate manifestation. And I would be curious to get your view here cuz mine I'm a glass half empty kind of guy is is <laughs> our our skyrocketing deficits we show up and we say i know we won't have to tax the rich more cuz they're my donors and we'll throw bread and circuses at the populace and we'll borrow money against future generations yeah. I mean, at what point do – my understanding is we're, we have the budget this year that we were projected to have in 2044. We've exploded our deficits. At what point do the deficits begin to register a toll on our, our current abilities? We, we know that long-term, it's, someone's got to have to pay this money back. But at what point does you – know, it's not a problem till it is a problem. When does it become a problem?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, frankly, it becomes a problem when the p- people who are holding your debt no longer want to lend to you. And as mm-hmm. you know, um, China, if it's not number one, it's usually number one or two. It's sort of the vie for the first and second position um, between China and Japan. China is the largest foreign lender to the US government. I mean, it, this is just a, a vulnerability that to me seems so stark. You know, how can you have um, the, your biggest lender be, in many many respects, your biggest rival. Um, you, you're being mm-hmm. very harsh in terms of trade, in terms of security, intellectual property, etc. Um, but on the other hand, they're holding the largest sub, um, amount of debt, which they can very easily put the squeeze on on the US. Now, some people will say, well, we're a reserve currency. Well, you know, I really do think that the world is changing incredibly quickly, and uh, there needs to be a better recognition of what is at stake. And I, I worry that that's not the case. And the other reference um, that, you know, to, your, to your question is have a look at the book uh, that was written a, number, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, by uh, Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhart, two economists I really like a lot. They wrote a book called This Time It's Different. And uh, they basically looked at 900 years of government debt, and they concluded that um, you know, when government debt to GDP ratio goes over sixty percent, um, it becomes an incredibly dangerous, precarious place. Not only because of what I just said, like who's be, you know who's lending to you, um, but also. Because um, your economic growth starts to slow considerably. Mm-hmm. And you know, just as a, a way of thinking about growth, you need to be growing at 3% per year in order to double per capita incomes in one generation. That's a ge- generation being about 25 years. Mm-hmm. So if you're growing below 3%, and for, for governments that have 60% debt to GDP ratios, uh, you're really growing at around 2%. You have enormous vulnerabilities, which could be anything from income inequality problems, but can very quickly seep into civil unrest um, and more um, deep-seated challenges to the sort of viability and stability of of an economy. Um, Perhaps the last thing I would just point out is, as you know, the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio is now 100% Mm debt-to-GDP. Globally, debt-to-GDP is around 320% in terms of what can really be done I think um, there are very few levers left, if any, for the United States, um, if they're not really sort of uh, embarked upon in a very aggressive way.
0: Coming up after the break,
1: boards need to have more visibility around ethical issues and this is largely because we have a lot of ethical issues around uh, data privacy use of data privacy you know we all want a vaccine we all want a cancer cure yesterday um, basically as soon as possible but you know what what freedoms are we willing to sacrifice in order to to speed that up
0: stay with us Support for property G comes from Fundrise. You know the adage, buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now, demand is dropping, and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise Flagship Fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash PropG. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risk, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the funds prospectus at fundrisecom flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Support for our show comes from Sonos. Usually when we read ads for the show, I get a whole page of talking points they want me to hit, But get this, Sonos sends me their latest portable speaker, Move 2, and no script. They just want me to share with you what I honestly think of it. And after listening to the speaker, I get why Sonos is so confident that I'd have good things to say. It's fantastic. It's incredible that this kind of fidelity and acoustics and sound comes from such a little device. I mean, it really packs a punch. And also, I have been buying Sonos for 10 or 15 years now. I know the CEO. I know people uh, that work there. They're just good people and a nice company, and they make an outstanding product. The battery life of Move 2 is so good giving up to 24 hours of playback and because it's weather and drop resistant you can bring it anywhere just think of all the places you could listen to this podcast what a thrill seriously you won't believe how good i sound on this speaker every stream counts people come on come on invest in this relationship to learn more about move to and other sonos speakers visit sonos.com that's s-o-n-o-s.com And you serve on a bunch of corporate boards. I know you're interested or have written about corporate governance. What do you think are the one or two structural changes or what would, you, how would you like to see boards of directors of public companies change?
1: So, you know, just to give some context, I do have a book called How Boards Work. I think that mm-hmm. there is a lot of um, a sort of a blind spot by a number of people, even, even our own employees, about what the mandate for the board is, what levers boards have to influence change. Um, boards have been around since around 1674. Um, mm-hmm. so, and you know, by and large, we haven't changed that much. I mean, on the margin, that there have been some changes, but really, fundamental change hasn't really been the case. And uh, I say that um, really with part temerity and part uh, humility, because mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said about a good governance structure. Um, but on the other hand, I, I don't want to to claim or, or to assert that. Other boards didn't have challenges. I mean, try being a board member in the middle of the World War One or World War Two must have been incredibly mm-hmm. difficult. So, you know, it's it is challenging, yes. Um, however, I do think there are some specific opportunities. I think boards need to have more visibility around ethical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, as one area. So, you know, there's some companies that are, are going as far as thinking about having ethics committees on the board. Um, and this is largely because we have a lot of ethical issues around uh, data privacy, use of data privacy. You know, we all want a vaccine. In fact, we all want a cancer cure yesterday, um, basically as soon as possible. But, you know, what, what freedoms are we willing to sacrifice in order to, to speed that up? Um, Do we want our pharmaceutical companies to um, do trials in a place like China where jurisdictions where the use of data is perhaps not as uh, managed or uh, policed as aggressively as the West? Um, So that's a fundamental question. I mean, there are other questions such as uh, ESG, broadly defined, and I'll pick climate as one example. How do we think about climate uh, an ESG compliance being, um, you know, is it is it comport with being in, an investor in China, or is it against being an investor in China? I mean, this is a, a, these are questions that I think ethics committees on a board or an ethics lens on a board will have to consider. The other one, the other another example of something I think would need to change. I mean, it's in some respects obvious, but in other ways not, and that is really we do need to have better understanding of trade offs. Um, I fear that there's a lot of campaigning, a lot of very aggressive policing of you know twenty first century capitalism, boards specifically. I mean, there's campaigns to defend companies, but there's just a lack of understanding about the importance of corporations and um, their role in the world. And if I may give you a very quick example, on the one hand, um, you know, we we are all, I mean, I think there are very few people who are climate change deniers. I think the evidence is is pretty clear that uh, human beings are contributing to the heating of, of the world. But, you know, on the one hand, we have to do something about climate change. On the other hand, we can't be so reckless as to just turn the lights out when there are about almost you know 1.5 billion people on the planet who don't have access to energy in a cost-effective and uh, sustainable sort of stable way. This is a problem because you know it, we might solve one problem, i.e., we turn out the lights um, because we want a sort of more sustainable energy approach. But on the other hand, we leave a lot of people incredibly impoverished, no access to education. Um, and you create another problem because then you have mass disorderly migration. Um, you know mm-hmm. I like to to encourage people to think about right now. We spend so much time on zoom screens and really heavily dependent on uh, on virtual and uh, electronics as you and I are doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is if you're sitting in in a place like my home country of Zambia, you know for 17, 18 hours a day, you don't have any you know any electricity because of load shedding. And it's the same is true in places like South Africa. It's a very specific example, but it's a very generalized problem that uh, we cannot and boards should not be in a place where they're being forced to uh, answer questions without thinking more generally about trade-offs and broader concerns for society.
0: So to wrap up, two things. I want to do a lightning round with you, but I want to give you the ability to pass because some of these questions, uh, someone who's thoughtful with your credentials, doesn't want to just want to give a three or oh, five good. second answer. Uh, in a decade, uh, global superpower, China or the U.S. or other?
1: Could it be both of them? Or what does what does other mean? Somebody else? <laughs>
0: well, I was thinking somebody else, but say yeah. more. Oh, no, say yeah. more.
1: I, I I think that digital be finely tuned. Um, I think that both co- economies. Uh, will be uh, important uh, players in, in different in different areas. And there's going to be forced cooperation, 50-50.
0: I well, that's optimistic. I think that's actually probably a, uh, a decent That's outcome. what my
1: portfolio says.
0: <laughs> and do you, stock market, NASDAQ, up or down next, call it next 24 months? Up. Up? Uh, yeah. Number number of households that are food insecure in the U.S., up or down over the next five years?
1: Um, I'd say up. I think the number is one in seven in the US. I'm, I fear it's going to be higher. Yeah.
0: And do you think that we as a nation become less or more polarized?
1: Um, I'm afraid it's probably going to be more polarized.
0: So let me just add to that. If there's more food insecurity, which sounds like more income inequality, if we become more polarized, isn't the risk of revolution much greater over the next five or seven years in the US?
1: Well, the, I would say. In principle, risk of anything, yes, is is rising. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think at the same time, the institutions in the United States are becoming more transparent, more inclusive. Um, I think what needs to be done is is greater conversation um and, you know I'm, I'm i've been reading this book i'm actually re- rereading a book called the art of thinking clearly which came out a number of years ago but it's really interesting because we make there's so many fallacies and so many assumptions made about what quote unquote the other side think and so i think mm-hmm. really public policy's duty and the next um you know certainly generation but certainly the next five years or so is really to try and bring people together having proper conversations about what america means what it supposed to be and how it's going to get to that place, as opposed to pointing fingers. And I've talked about this. I think one of the weaknesses in the country, um, which I, I really love living in America, but one of the challenges has been, it's been too um, easy to blame someone else. It's always China's fault, or it's globalization's mm-hmm. fault, and there's no real acknowledgement that we've made some catastrophic errors that need to be rectified. So I'm optimistic about the U.S. because I think they're very quick to, to solve problems.
0: And last question, advice to your 25-year-old self, or specifically, we have a very young viewership uh, on the podcast here. What advice would you offer them?
1: Um, I would say two things. One is things take time. Don't try and be clever. You know, we've all looked for shortcuts. They don't exist. So you've got to do your time, basically. And the other one is uh, no doesn't mean never. It just means not now, which I think is really important. People, they get told no, and they think it's the end of the world when actually, it just might mean that you need to work a little bit harder or differently. Um, and so you really shouldn't be discouraged. It just doesn't mean never. It just means not now.
0: Dr. Dambisa Moyo is a global economist and best-selling author who influences key decision makers in strategic investment and public policy. A trusted advisor on macroeconomics, geopolitics, and technology themes, and serves on a number of global corporate boards, including 3M, Chevron, and Condé Nast. She worked at the World Bank and Goldman Sachs for nearly a decade and joins us from her home. And where are you, doctor? Where are you right now? New York City. In New York. Greatest city in the world. Greatest city in the world. so
1: nice. They had to name it twice.
0: (laughs) There you go. We'll be right back. Support for the Prop G Show comes from NetSuite. As a business owner, you have numbers jumping around your head all the time. Some of them matter, like how many employees do we need by the end of 2024, while some of them don't, like how many episodes of Love Island can my DVR hold? Your job is to separate the numbers that do matter from the ones that don't. Thankfully, NetSuite has just three numbers that you need to remember, 25, one. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash propg. That's netsuite.com slash propg to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash propg. of happiness. I found that when I had kids, uh, I was working around the clock. And one of the most rewarding things I remember about having uh, kids at home or babies, we had a newborn and a three-year-old at home. I was working pretty much around the clock in Manhattan. And when I would head home, I remember I would come uh, down 10th Street and make a ride on 4th Avenue. And right when I made that right, I'd start walking faster. And I was just so excited uh, to see my new family. It was just such a, a wonderful feel to have people you love and who love you. And there's nothing like the welcome you get from kids when they're at that age where they still still like dad or daddy. It was just wonderful. And that last hundred meters, by the way, once I saw them, they were great for 10 minutes and then they just turned into total needy jerks. I found that anticipation was one of the most rewarding things about being a dad. Whenever I would get on a plane home, I would immediately just get kind of this strange sense of impatience and a little bit of anxiety, but mostly hopefulness and anticipation of getting to see my family. That as soon as I got to the airport after a client engagement or a meeting, that anticipation and that excitement would build. And the closer I would get to home and then finally to that last 100 meters uh, was just wonderful. And I think that's been one of the nicest. If I look back on the film that is my life. Jesus, that'd be one fucked up documentary. You don't want to see that on your Netflix home screen. Anyways, the the frames that were really rewarding or burn brightest for me weren't necessarily even being with people. Weren't necessarily even going on some great vacation. It was the anticipation. So where does this take us? Build some anticipation in your life. Build some frames that you can look forward to. Call people that you love that you haven't seen in a while, whether it's friends, whether it's grandparents, And put something on the calendar and then call them, call them and create anticipation, create that last hundred meters, create a sense of wanting and longing. And even if you have, even if something happens where you have to cancel, the best thing for me about seeing people, about vacations, about doing something wonderful has been the last hundred meters before that thing happens. Build the last hundred meters in your life, start making plans and reach out to people and give them that last hundred meters. Make some trips, put some things on the calendar, and then express to people, tell them how excited you are to do this, but more specifically, to do this with them. Our producers are Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to The Prop G Show from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll catch you next week on Monday and Thursday.